Okay, I think we are now live. So welcome everyone to TBRCon 2021. Uh, hopefully this becomes an annual thing. Uh, so today's panel is the intersection of neurodivergence and speculative fiction writing. Um, so my name is Travis Tippins. I'm one of the bloggers over at the Fantasy Inn and I host the Fantasy Inn podcast. Uh, but you're not here for me, you're here for our wonderful guests. So I'm gonna turn it over to them and allow everyone to introduce themselves and their most recent or upcoming work. I guess, um, um, Elisa, if you wanna go first. Sure, no problem. Hi all, uh, I'm Elisa. I am the author of two books that are coming out, I think both in 2022. Uh, my debut is going to be called Brave, um, and it's basically a Filipino-inspired YA fantasy where two girls fall in love. Um, they're from opus they're from opposing cultures, and they basically have to try and stop a war so that they can be together. And I am really, really thrilled to be here. This is like my first panel appearance ever, so nice to meet all of you. Uh, I'm Sunny, and um, I live in the UK, I'm biracial uh, and neurodivergent, and I have a book coming out a long time away now because it's been pushed back to fall 2022. Uh, it's called The Book Eaters, and it's set in an alternate 90s Britain. Uh, my editor had a really good summary of it. She called it, be gay, do crime, eat books, which is a lot better than my summary <laughs> of um, two women traveling slowly in a train towards Scotland. So, um, yeah, I'll hand over to, oh, is it Essa next, I think? Yeah. yeah. So I am um, Essa Hansen. I write science fiction and fantasy. And my debut novel, No Fight Gloss, came out from Orbit Books uh, two months ago now. It's a sprawling space opera um, revenge story. Cool. Um, I'm Sonora. Um, I don't have anything announced yet, but um, the book I got my agent with is actually contemporary. Um, it's called The Lesbiana's Guide to Catholic School. And I'm actually also working on um, like a high fantasy, like Mesoamerican inspired, um, like kind of like, a, it's almost like a murder mystery, but it's like high fantasy. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, all of your works sound incredible. I have actually read Essa's book, uh, which I can personally vouch for, but I'm looking forward to picking up everyone else's once they release. Um, so, okay. The topic of our panel is neurodivergence in SFF writing. So I figured one of the ways we could start this off is as much as everyone's comfortable with, if uh, you could share your personal experience with neurodivergence and your personal diagnoses. Um, so I guess, uh, Essa, if you want to start off. Yeah, uh, so I'm a late diagnosis autistic. It's only been like 2.4, two and a half years um, actually following Sunny's <laughs> diagnosis. <laughs> I started realizing that our experiences were really similar and um, I looked into it myself. And I also have synesthesia, which is where one sense modality cross wires with another one. Uh, so mine is auditory tactile, so I can feel and sort of see sounds in my environment. Um, and I also have hyperphantasia, which is like a vivid mental imagination. And for me, it's kind of across all senses. Uh, so I can imagine something and it's like it, watching a movie and feeling it and smelling it all at the same time. 
Fantastic. Uh, I guess, uh, Sonia, if you want to go next. Uh, yeah, I'm also late diagnosed after my son was picked up um, because he's non-speaking, so I guess it was easier to diagnose him. And then off the back of that, I got my own diagnosis. And again, by then I knew Essa, we would we talk quite a lot. And yeah, that kicked off hers, I think, eventually as well. Um, on top of that, I'm also alexithemic, which is a very common condition for people who are autistic to varying degrees. And it basically means uh, I struggle to name emotions or to identify emotions. I might have symptoms of being angry, um, but I won't necessarily connect that and realize I'm angry or sad or happy. Uh, a lot of times I have to judge um, by looking at how I'm behaving. Uh, it's kind of like the mental equivalent of you don't get the right amount of sensation. Um, yeah, I'll hand over to who's next. <laughs> Um, I guess, Sonora, if you want to go next. Okay. Um, so I'm also kind of late diagnosis autistic. Um, I was diagnosed at like 23. Um, and I'm also schizoaffective. Uh, so like it's a schizophrenia plus uh, mood disorder. Um, yeah. So like hallucinations and stuff like that. <laughs> And Elisa? I think I'm the opposite of the whole group. So I'm the odd one out here. I was diagnosed during childhood, but um, I'm late sort of to the community. So I'm very late to the party because I was encouraged as a kid to mask um, my autism and keep it on the down low and not tell anybody about it. So that led to me like not really knowing much about it or reaching out to other people about it. Uh, I think in the past year, I've really started trying to connect with other autistic people. And that's when I've realized that, hey, the reason I do so many of the things that I do that I thought I was just being super weird is actually because I'm autistic. So, um, yeah. Right, well, thank you all for sharing that. And I think that gives us a good kind of basis to move forward with the rest of this discussion. And I wanna start things out with uh, kind of a broad question, but I think it's probably one that most people are interested in hearing first. So how uh, does your neurodivergence affect your writing and maybe your approach to the industry? And I know uh, several of you were diagnosed at different points in life. So uh, if you were diagnosed after you started writing, does that change your approach at all? So I guess whoever wants to take this first. I can go first. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's changed my approach. So I was diagnosed after. Um, with the autism diagnosed after I uh, started writing and synesthesia, I kind of knew from when I was a teenager, um, figuring out online and you sort of see things like, wait, that sounds like me and then dive into forums and ah, this is my experience. Um, so my approach hasn't changed, but it's been a continual process of um, understanding what's uh, my unconscious processes are and how that comes um, into my writing and realizing the strengths and weaknesses. Um, for me, it's very much a double-edged sword, like my imaginative descriptions um, and concepts are a strength, but it's very easily uh, becomes confusing on the page. And I had to realize that the way that I naturally express um, my creativity and imagination and writing is not comprehensible. <laughs> by others, so I need a lot of rounds of editing um, to, to do like a second round of translating um, so that it makes sense. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, I was also diagnosed after writing or after I'd started writing. Um, and it, it just kind of explained, I remember submitting writing to a sample chapter to um, my local novelist group and having people comment on things like, oh, the, you know, the sensory descriptions are so kind of over the top and intense. And to me, I was writing things that were normal um, and having that make sense later. And I think I definitely early on ran into a problem that anecdotally, I think a lot of neurodivergent people run into, which is creating characters that are not accessible to neurotypical audiences and learning how to, to find that balance between being authentic and having style and input from that perspective, but also being approachable to people. And that was a really tricky one. I think on my end, I mean, it, like, this is something about myself that I've always known, but I've never really known what it means. Um, and I wasn't aware that it affected my writing or how much it affected my writing until I started having an editor look over my work. And my editor would say things, I mean, my characters at this point for this upcoming book are neurotypical. So they're not autistic. Um, I will write some books with autistic characters in the future, but there are some things that my characters experience that my editor calls out and I was like, oh, everybody doesn't feel that? So like, you mean when everyone is really stressed out, they don't sudden sound doesn't fade out to this high-pitched whine? I thought that was everybody. <laughs> um, I'm also very bad at facial descriptions. I'm bad at uh, describing how characters look. And my editor has been um, kind of pushing me to do better. And I think the reason why I'm bad at that is I don't spend a lot of time looking at people's faces. Um, <laughs> and even when I do, it, it takes me a while to recognize a person's face when they're wearing different clothes. Uh, Maybe you know after I get more comfortable with them, I'll look into their face. I, I actually didn't even notice what color my partner's eyes were until one year into our relationship, and then I was very surprised. So <laughs> when I imagine my characters, I somehow just don't really imagine their faces. I, I they're like faceless, colorful blobs that interact and do things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like um, pretty much the same. Like I. I didn't consciously write like autistic or neurodivergent characters, but I was putting like what was relatable to me onto them. So they basically were, even if I didn't do it consciously, um, like, yeah, just like, you know, lack of eye contact or like um, the sensory stuff, like it just the way that they experience the world. Um, and I don't know if they read, like if my characters actually read as autistic, but I feel like they kind of are. <laughs> um, and then like definitely in my other books, like I have like very explicitly autistic characters. So there's that too. But in my first one, the one I got my agent with, it wasn't like an intentional thing. It just kind of like happened. I found it interesting getting so my books out so I get reader feedback and realizing exactly how much like they're finding some of especially the immersive and sensory stuff like really unusual <laughs> and like I'm thinking that's my normal world like <laughs> this um 
this world that you find really strange and, and unusual is like every day for me. So, and I hadn't thought of that before when I was writing, it was just sort of writing my experience. Uh, and then it ends up sounding really imaginative and creative to other people. <laughs> but to me, it's sort of much more bland. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, for the book that got me an agent, um, when I started writing that book, I had no idea about being autistic. And over the course of that year, got that diagnosis. So while I was writing, I was figuring it out. And by the time I finished that book, I realized I'd written an autistic character without intending to. I mean, that book didn't get picked up. I hope it will someday. But um, it, it just, it, it comes in, I think you can't kind of get away from that perspective. And even in stories where I don't set out to have protagonists who are autistic, I tend to pick perspectives of people who are aliens or monsters or other, because that feels more natural in a way but being slightly outside of society. Right, I think that's one thing that a lot of readers might think of when they hear of autistic characters is, uh, you know, there's the stereotype of autism as being non-creative and not really emotional. Uh, so how do you write emotion and emotional reactions into your characters or just how do you approach this in general? Uh, I feel like um, my characters are very emotional. Like I'm a very emotional person. Like I just express my emotions maybe a little bit differently than other people do. Um, and I think that's the case with a lot of autistic people. Like I don't think we're necessarily like don't have emotions. Um, so yeah, my characters are very emotional. They just like, will express their emotions maybe a little bit differently. Um, and like, they all kind of have their little, like, I guess, quirks of like, how they, how they express themselves that I've given them. And I guess that does relate back to like, my autism and how I know to express my emotions. Yeah. And sort of the same, like, I. I'm an emotional person and I don't struggle with um, even describing emotions, but it's sometimes a struggle um, to figure out how a reader will respond to a particular emotion or if, and this is sort of a broad, if not um, universal writerly struggle of trying to figure out how much um, or what you put on the page is too on the nose um, and how much you've buried in subtext so that the reader can't pick it up. That's sort of still an ongoing struggle um, in terms of writing emotion for me. I'm um, a very emotional person as well, so I kind of I kind of take issue with that stereotype um, a lot of times because I am I think on the other end of the spectrum I'm a little too emotional about things and sometimes the things that that I'm emotional about are not things that that pe neurotypical people around me understand why I'm getting upset about things. Um, so my characters also have pretty strong emotions and I mean I write high fantasy and I'm always uh, attached to that idea of this, those big dramatic moments where like people are having messy feelings all over the place and they're screaming and fighting and etc. So um, yeah you're gonna see some of that in basically all of my books. Um, whether that the expression of those emotions are like whether the reader can connect with those feelings. I, I 
haven't yet, my books haven't been released yet. So I think what I'm hoping is that you guys, when you read um, my books, can tell me <laughs> if you understood my characters or not. <laughs> and then I can, I can see um, if I wrote them okay. <laughs> Uh, I think for me, one of the things I like about writing is that I have more leeway. So there's there's this really good craft book by Donald Mass called The Emotional Craft of Fiction, where he talks about how even the best writers, I mean, it doesn't specify neurotypical people, but even the best writers can't force a reader to experience a certain emotion and you're aiming to provoke rather than to recreate, if that makes sense. So I feel like I have leeway because I can write a scene about um, a funeral and a reader might find it funny even if I thought it was sad or they might find it you know heartwarming or something and it doesn't matter because as long as they feel something it still creates an emotional connection and in conversation it's harder you have to get that right you have to make people understand what you're feeling you have to generate the right feeling but in a book there's so much more leeway for interpretation and that's sort of understood by the reader a lot of times I think uh, so I don't know if I get it right, but I also don't worry about it as much as long as I make them feel something. Um, as long as that feeling isn't they want to shut the book and throw it away, then I think it's okay. <laughs> so. Right. And then I think kind of the flip side of this is as well, like historically, uh, neurodivergent characters are often portrayed as like robots or artificial intelligences or, you know, like Vulcans or aliens, you know, people who cannot like get human emotions. Um, so I want to just open that up to all of you. And how do you feel about that? Uh, so the, uh, sorry to talk again so soon, but I actually love Vulcans as a representation of autistics in space. I think they're really well done. I, I almost wonder if one of the writers was familiar with the topic, but Vulcans are actually very emotional in Star Trek lore. Um, and they're very sensory, they're very, um, they have strong sensory awareness. And they're so emotional and they're so sensitive that they have to lock everything down. Uh, and that that's why they have this kind of masking. So, I mean, effectively Vulcans mask in Star Trek. And I think that's why maybe they connect so well with a lot of the, the kind of autistic community in Star Trek, that they are very emotional and they're very passionate and very logical and they care about things, that, but just not in quite the same way that humans do and they don't express it in the same way and they have different methods of dealing with being overwhelmed. So, um, but yeah, in general, we're maybe not always best represented. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and there's there's sort of the catch-22 of like we're relating to the positives and while stereotypes are often focused on the negatives <laughs> so like in in film school my nicknames were Borg, Terminator, <laughs> Megatron, <laughs> like all of these <laughs> um, sort of cyborg characters which was coming from positive traits like I was always on time my my work was fast it was high quality I was analytical and like solution driven um, and it may have also behind my back been about like the social aspect struggles um, with com communication and um, interpretation of intent and stuff. But it was coming from, like, they were seeing the positive traits uh, and connecting it to um, these like robotic cyborg characters, um, which I didn't mind because it was, you know, the positive I do relate to, but yeah, the emotion, <laughs> they're almost always, um, the representation um, misses the emotion part. Mm -hmm. I, I, sorry, Essa, please. No, no, go continue. ahead. 
I think that I'm I'm personally kind of neutral on on ghost representations. I think that they're good and they're valid for some people, um, but I personally don't really connect to. I mean, I connect to the. I, I usually tend to connect the characters that are uh, inexplicably like they care very deeply about things um, and they don't. Uh, maybe they they don't know how to relate to their friends or they don't know how to talk to other people, but, and they have like really strange bursts of emotion that happen randomly. But at the same time, my mom is autistic and she loves the Vulcans and she loves those characters. So I'm, I'm super happy that they exist. Um, I just wish that we had a more varied spectrum of autistic characters to choose from. And I feel like a lot of those characters uh, hit the emotional side of autism, the, the inability to connect socially sometimes and the difficulty with feelings and, and regular like tone of voice and things like that, but kind of miss the sensory issues, which I uh, honestly struggle with a lot and don't really see. So, yeah. I feel, uh, what, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I'll, I'll <laughs> add on to Lisa's in a minute. <laughs> Oh no, you can, if it's adding on to Lisa. <laughs> I was just gonna say with the sensory stuff and like my synesthesia, cause that's not really represented very much in media either. Like the sort of world, sensory world that I live in, I don't see representation and it's not really something, since it's invisible, you can't really um, represent it in a character. Um, but in sci-fi and fantasy, you know, we have the ability to have, um, to have an alien species or a, you know, a fantasy species that in, that has a sensory world that's really similar and you can put that on the page and try and you know get readers to um, connect with the experience uh, through a non-human character or through a human character um, that that experiences that way because of magic or because of you know different um, mode of consciousness uh, in the genre. Yeah, I feel like my <clears throat> my feelings on it kind of vary. Like on one hand, it does kind of suck that there's not more like representation like of like humans being autistic and like having those symptoms. Um, but at the same time, I do know a lot of like autistic people who will write um, like autistic characters as aliens or like whatever else because of like this feeling of not really belonging like with the humans i guess so like i do feel like it, it kind of like works in a lot of cases um but at the same time for like neurotypical people to write it that way it hits a little differently you know what i mean and I've also noticed, like, this is not just a thing with, like, autism or neurodiver neurodivergence, but, like, there's also, like, with trans representation, especially non-binary representation, they're often portrayed as, like, aliens who use neutral pronouns. Like, that's a thing. Or, yeah. or what? Deities. I've seen the, the neutral, the gender neutral god characters yeah. so many times. Yeah, but, like, yeah. um, and, and it, again, it's not necessarily, like, a bad thing it's just like if you're not of that group and you write it this way like why do you feel like these non-human characters are the ones who can have these traits instead of the human characters if that makes sense but like i feel like if it's own voices that's a completely different story 
Yeah, and especially because so many autistic people, there's there's massive overlap between the autistic community and LGBTQ mm -hmm. um, So it's just yeah, yeah. That, that side gets missed out a lot, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we've kind of hit on like aspects of this next question, but I do want to ask: Are there any common misconceptions or mistakes that you see other writers, uh, whether they're neurodivergent or not, that they make when they're trying to write neurodivergent characters? Okay. Before we move on to this one, um, somebody with a username that looks suspiciously like my mom is on the chat. The comments going, "Mom is a Vulcan." So I want to just apologize to my mother. Yes, mom, you are a Vulcan. Okay. <laughs> oh, I guess, yeah, before we move on, there's also another question. So outside of Vulcans, are there any other characters in books, TV, or film that you would say are good representations? I like Entrapta from um, She-Ra. <laughs> I think she's great. I don't know any characters that are confirmed to be autistic, but I know I have a few that in my head totally are. Um, yep, my mom pointed out the film, yeah. But uh, I think personally, like, I don't know how many of you guys watch Hero Academia, My Hero Academia. Todoroki, in my head, is autistic, and none of you guys can take that away from me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, I haven't seen the show, but I know from my autism groups on Facebook that the protagonist in Queen's Gambit is considered to be kind of an autistic representation that she has all those traits, and that when you when you read about the author's history and stuff, it it feels like he could well be neurodivergent. Um, just the fact the way that he was institutionalized and stuff as a child, so. I don't, I don't know where he fits into that, but she's regarded as pretty decent autistic rep unofficially, what, what they call autistic coded, I think. Characters who are written with tr those traits, but never specified. I watched uh, the TV show Hannibal before my diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, and I really resonated with Will Graham and especially the hyper empathy <laughs> represented in that show. Uh, and then later I watched it again with my diagnosis and I'm like, this makes so much sense why I was, you know, mm -hmm. connecting with um, traits this character was um, displaying uh, that, you know, and in the show he's on the spectrum, uh, they stayed at one point. Um, but I thought it was a really good job and yeah, that's my example. I actually have another one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this one is unofficial also, and people are probably going to get mad at me about it. People have gotten mad at me about it, but I will never shut up about it. Um, I strongly, strongly feel like Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender is autistic. Yes. Like, he has some, and, and I feel like that's like, a portrayal like I know the creators probably didn't do it on purpose, but he's autistic. Okay, like he, <laughs> like if, like he'll be like meditating, and Iroh like interrupts him, and he has a meltdown, or like he copies like Azula's language, and he thinks he takes everything at face value, like he believes everyone's lies. He doesn't understand Iroh's metaphors. Like, he is just, he's autistic, okay, like. 
Uh, he has that one scene in Sonora before meeting the 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 Ang group where he rehearses his like, oh yes yes that's cute. he rehearses his oh my gosh yes and yeah. and not not knowing how to like respond to like emotional moments like that's rough, that's buddy. rough buddy like <laughs> come on yes a hundred percent yeah I think oh uh, David Mitchell is for just like a kind of big trade public author who's probably more typical. He writes some pretty decent autistic characters, I think. Um, I don't, maybe that comes from his experience of his son. He sort of steers away from the, the martyr, he, you know, doesn't have any martyr parent stories that I'm aware of in his writing, but he has some pretty good autistic characters as well. Uh, <laughs> I'm not seeing another time. Sorry, go on. <laughs> Anne of Green Gables. Um, when I was a kid, that was a book that I really related with because I felt a lot like Anne, so. <laughs> yeah, uh, these are all very interesting examples and a lot of them I didn't pick up on when I was first either reading or watching that media. But yeah, thank you all for pointing those out. Um, let's see, but yeah, so I guess uh, back to the previous question before that fantastic conversation. Um, just what are some, I guess, common mistakes or things that you wish writers would do better when they're writing neurodivergent characters? I would say making them actually three-dimensional. Like, I feel like a lot of um, portrayals of neurodivergent characters is like, they are neurodivergent and that is, that's them and that's everything. Um, and like, neurodivergent people like yes like neurodivergence kind of like is intertwined with every aspect of our lives but that doesn't mean that like there aren't other aspects of our lives if that makes sense um and like also intersectionality like i feel like that's a big thing um because it's like sonia said like there's this big intersection between like you know neurodivergence and like queerness or like you know like people of color like i am like a neurodivergent queer like the same person of color like <laughs> there's a lot of like nuance that goes into like writing characters that are like intersectional um and i feel like a lot of people don't like miss that nuance when it, especially when it comes to like neurodivergence i would also say like not not just using the neurodivergence as an easy source of con conflict in the story, um, not just focusing on the negatives of it or having it, you know, something they need to struggle with or to be otherwise a problem to solve, um, but to have a fully rounded character um, in other ways. Sorry, I'm getting an echo in my headset. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, I think. So my least favorite kind of stereotype of writing is one that isn't considered to be a stereotype. I think it is. And there's been some essays on it, but basically the, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl character who is often a, a type of autistic coded woman. And it's just like that whole stereotype is crap anyway. But <laughs> um, just that it's, you can read up on it. There's loads of, there's loads of discussion about basically how it's harmful and it's really quite tragic as a characterization of autistic women, the quirky, isolated, um, slightly gullible, hypersexual, probably bisexual, <laughs> um, 
and it's yeah it, i think it's really pervasive i would also just like to see kind of more variety um more instead of just carbon copies of sheldon cooper who i think is kind of a douche <laughs> as a character uh just you know some, a bit more interesting a bit more variety to it and um, oh sorry very quickly i was going to add in add on to the last question for good autistic rap ada hoffman's website has an autistic book party which has her reviewed lists of books either by or about autistic characters uh, autistic people so uh, that's quite a good source right sorry anyway <laughs> that's my delayed reaction yeah i don't really have too much to add on this except like i'm going to echo that call for more variety because i feel like we always get one type of autistic character uh and it's usually um like a Sheldon Cooper type, a a man who sits, who has very specific preferences, and who is mean to everybody, and who doesn't understand emotion. And it would be wonderful to see more of um, more types of characters, and to see some intersectionality addressed, like Sonora said. So um, that's basically my thoughts on this. Yeah, there's a good comment that I want to read, just so uh, people with only access to audio can hear this as well. So if from the Harlequin 1968. Uh, if you're not neurodivergent, do the research. In many aspects, neurodivergent people are pretty mainstream. We just process differently. Uh, it's disappointing to be portrayed as either the comic relief, assassin, or geek. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess we we touched on this briefly with Sonora's comment in the last question, but I want to talk a little bit about, I guess, the intersectionality of neurodiversity. Um, so, I mean, that could be queerness, that could be race, that could be gender, that could be, you know, anything. Um, so I guess in general, I just want to open this up to however you all want to address this. If you want me to not be friends with you, the, the easiest way to do that is to open a conversation with, but you don't look autistic. Um, <laughs> if anyone else has ever heard that before, <laughs> exactly. Because um, it's code for you don't look like Sheldon Cooper, which is like, yes, that's true, but <laughs> that's because there's so much more to um, it, it's not a white guy disorder, put it that way. I also, I, I hate it also because I think that sometimes people think they're paying you a compliment, like. One of the things that I heard is, is, but you're not that bad. And it was like, what does that even mean? And also, you don't know what's going on behind this. Yeah. Yeah, it erases, you know, the actual struggles going on or, you know, what it takes to function um, and to mask and to look, you know, like you're fine. Right. Yeah, um, I will say like on intersectionality, like in my experience, like being like a like, you know, Mexican American autistic person, um, the reason why I got my diagnosis so late is because like my family, like very like traditional Mexican family, like didn't believe in like, like with my dad, it was like, you only go to the doctor if like you're bleeding, if I can see a bone, like, <laughs> like it's, it's like extreme situations that you go to the doctor, not because like, you know, 
you think a little differently or whatever like and so when I finally did get my diagnosis as an adult I did it on my own and when I told my parents I was like hey like I just got diagnosed as autistic my mom was like oh yeah I yeah I could have told you that <laughs> I was like are you serious and you never like thought to like yeah so that <laughs> a little frustrating but like I guess they didn't want me to deal with like stigma or anything too. But, yeah, yeah, when I when I got and I told my parents, um, that's the point my mother chose to tell me that they'd actually had me assessed as a child and they stopped the assessment because she felt that she could just kind of train away all the problematic behaviors at home, um, which is kind wow. of a very sort of Chinese parent mindset. Like, um, I mean, she meant well, but it, it, I don't think that was a good result. So I was a bit yeah. annoyed about. <laughs> um, but she came to the interview, you know, she helps because you, you've got to, you have to have a parental interview. If you get a diagnosis in the UK, they interview your, your parents and stuff. So she did help on that side of it. Yes, I probably would not have gotten diagnosed as a kid all the way in the Philippines um, if it wasn't because of external circumstances at a time in my life where I was so stressed out, I was melting down basically on the daily. Um, and then when I was diagnosed, my, my mom asked the psychologist, what does that mean? And the psychologist told her and she was like, oh, that's me too. And probably like a significant chunk of my relatives. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's a lot of people, especially people who aren't the standard white man in the West who don't get diagnosed because of this. Right. I guess the next thing I want to talk about is we've kind of talked about the writing aspect of everything, but writing is more than just the content of what you put in your manuscripts, right? So I'm curious, uh, did any of you ever encounter editors or agents saying they can't relate to your characters because they're neurodivergent or anything like that? I think this goes along with the intersectionality of it. Like, I did get a lot of comments of can't relate to the voice but like it could have been because like maybe some characters may have been like autistic coded or it could have been because the way that she talks is very like like it's like a very mexican book <laughs> so it could have been because of that like there's a lot of different like reasons so i wouldn't have any way of knowing if it was because of that or not I've, I've definitely gotten the, I don't know, I can't connect to this character <laughs> response before. Um, but I think for me, it's more um, people struggling to connect to some of the writing style. And again, like the double-edged sword of I can write really immersive, sensory, lush prose, but like the, the word choices that I go to um, and the metaphors and analogies, it's like, how I experience things and it's how I want to describe it isn't really relatable. Uh, and in the best, uh, in the best cases, like if I do it right and I'm um, careful with my clarity, then it evokes a unique experience for the reader. Um, but if I don't, then it's, you know, just incomprehensible uh, sort of experience that I'm trying to convey. So it takes a lot of work to carve that out. Um, 
I think for Anchor, which is the, the book that found me an agent, I, even before diagnosis, I had an awareness that I, because the, the first book I'd written, there was lots of, oh, we can't connect to this kind of character. So I still had that kind of character in the book, but they weren't the narrator and they weren't the protagonist. Um, and that, I mean, I guess in an ideal world, people would try anyway, but it just gave extra time where I had a very kind of conventional, neurotypical narrator who's very extroverted and stuff, kind of bringing the text in and introducing the story. And then by the time, hopefully by the time people were reading, you know, the, the more neurodivergent character, they're sort of invested in seeing what happens next. Um, I, I think, I don't think I've had any issues with editors myself. I know Ada Hoffman has talked a bit about one of her, uh, sorry, one of their friends who went on submission and I had an editor return their manuscript with the note saying, um, you know, this character isn't authentically autistic. Uh, and then they used atypical, the, the kind of Netflix show as their evidence for this. <laughs> and they're saying this to an, an actually autistic author, which is just, is, is really bad form. Um, to firstly say that you know your representation of yourself is not authentic, and secondly, here's the TV show I saw to prove it. So uh, it does happen, I think. Um, and just you know the fact that there are very few autistic authors in sci-fi and fantasy who are published by the big four. Kind of, but the fact, but we're overrepresented in fans. You know, we're the super fans. We fill conventions. We wear the costumes. We. We're, we're really engaged in keeping sci-fi and fantasy afloat, but very few of us are recognized or published as creators. I haven't, um, in my life, I haven't gotten a whole lot of feedback, just a whole lot of rejections. Um, it's been a very hard road to get to, to the book level thing. And, and like Sonora, I'm not really sure why like i i don't know if it's because people couldn't connect to my characters because they were coded autistic without me knowing it if um my writing was just bad and i needed time to get my writing to the point where people liked it uh people who weren't my classmates who were my primary audience like all the way until i i left school or um if i don't know there's a great thread on twitter right now about people uh the active character who makes all the decisions and runs in the situations and and takes on the world is a is sort of a western construct um my characters especially in the early days had a lot of things happen to them and that's i was living at the time in the philippines where a lot of things were happening to me and i was just having to deal with with all these things happening to me so i do wonder if if some of those early rejections were just because my characters weren't active enough, weren't running out and, and saying, I will change the world and we're just trying to survive in it. Um, so it's really hard to say. Yeah, I do remember reading that Twitter thread and I think my favorite takeaway from it is that survival in the face of things happening to you is an active choice, right? Like that's not a passive choice on, so that's very valid. Um, yeah, so I guess how do you try to bridge towards, say, neurotypical readers who might be struggling to relate to your experience? Um, and is there anything about science fiction, fantasy, genre fiction in general that makes that easier or harder? Uh, people are more willing to try something outside their comfort zone if they're reading sci-fi and fantasy, is, would be my experience. 
So we're more willing to say, okay, I don't understand what someone from planet Zoidberg or whatever is is thinking, but I'll give the author a chance to explain it. And I think you have a bit of leeway in that sense to also create characters who think differently and, and respond differently to sensory stimuli. Yeah, and I think like we can create worlds in which you know hypersensory or extrasensory perception is featured as normal. Um, as a lens uh, into new experience for the reader. And I think it's interesting that in sci-fi and fantasy, we can get away with um, not using labels. So in um, River Solomon's uh, An Unkindness of Ghosts and Ada Hoffman's The Outside, like the word mm -hmm. autism is never used. Um, and those have autistic main characters, um, but they're, they feel really real and they're moving through this world with their unique experience, um, but it's not, like the labels never put on it. It's never, you know, called out. Um, and just, I think it avoids a lot of stereotypes um, by not bringing that up and just presenting a, a human character who's three-dimensional um, going through the story. Yeah, 100%. I think um, sci-fi and fantasy readers are already primed to accept strange and unusual things that are outside of their experience. Um, I don't know if it, how much harder this would be if I were writing like contemporary. So maybe Sonora, since you do write contemporary, you could speak to that a little bit. Sorry to put you on the spot, but uh, <laughs> okay. I, I think that before I, I was fully comfortable with thinking of myself as autistic, I did like a lot of characters because they were quirky. And I think that that's way more acceptable in sci-fi fantasy than, than in other genres. Just interesting characters who think in different ways. Yeah, that's true. I do feel like in contemporary, um, a lot of readers are just trying to relate to the main character. Um, whereas in like speculative fiction, they're not necessarily trying to relate because this character could be, you know, any, you know, like they might not be human. Like uh, you might not have that need to relate to them as much so it's easier to kind of like put yourself out of the equation and just read the book as this is like a different kind of person um so I do feel like in that sense it's a little bit like more acceptable I guess um I think when you're writing like neurodivergence in contemporary at least for me I do feel pressure to make it like an issue book instead of just making the character just happen to be neurodivergent. Whereas like, I feel like in fantasy, mm -hmm. it's really like easy to not make it an issue book. It could just be, this is the character and this is the world they're in. And like a completely like a plot that has nothing to do with that necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do feel like there's kind of pressure in contemporary to educate. So if you have that character, it feels like, like I feel a pressure to like educate people about what that means instead of just having them be neurodivergent. Yeah. Yeah, I do kind of want to follow up on that. I'm curious, do any of you, uh, especially I guess if you started writing before you had your diagnoses, uh, do you feel like an internal pressure now that, oh, like, now that I am this thing, I have to be like a fantastic example of this thing for the world. Is that something you feel or no? Honestly, not for me. Um, and 
I, I guess I, I kind of like feel more of a freedom to be able to write these things like, oh, this is like who I am. And like, yes, there is pressure in some sense of like not wanting to misre misrepresent it. But I kind of feel like if I write to my own experience and people feel misrepresented by that, that's not my fault. You know what I mean? Like that we're not a monolith and people can't expect us to be. So like if, if another reader, like I, I don't expect everyone to feel represented by my work. Like just, I feel like the, the um, feeling that I want to get away from it is like, it's nice to be able to like show a character that has like a lot of my intersections or at least some of them. Like it's kind of hard for me to write a character with all of my intersections. <laughs> um, like I, I'm still working on that, but um, I do feel like people can appreciate at least I hope they would appreciate that instead of looking for um, expecting a specific kind of experience to be represented, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. For my um, synesthesia and some of the sensory stuff uh, in my sci-fi world, it's actually been really fun to kind of be able to um, put that on the page <laughs> however I want. Like there's sort of no no limit to being able to describe things that are sort of wild or bizarre or weird. Um, it's been nice to, you know, have characters who are um, able to engage with the world uh, and even these other dimensions and things like space and time uh, at a really rich and nuanced level. I think it's also just, a, sorry, to build off both of those and especially at Sonora's point, we, we really aren't representative of like the community as a whole. We, you know, there's there's additional barriers for a lot of autistic people. So there's a big divide within the community between people who are non-speaking or unreliable speaking and people who are speaking, for example. Um, and it, I can't represent someone who's non-speaking. Um, uh, it is a different, I think, a very different experience from mine, just looking at my son and, and how he grows and how he relates to his, the world around him. His experience, his childhood is not mine and it's not comparable. So we, it's just, I think that's why it's about kind of, you, you find as many diverse voices as you can so that those different experiences are modeled. Um, and we're only just now getting to the point where non-speaking autistic people are actually heard and given some attention. Uh, that's a relatively new thing. Yeah, I think building off of Sunny's point, we really are not a monolith. Um, my core family has three autistic women in it, and we disagree on so many things that it's it's incredible. Like we can't. Um, some people need complete silence. Some people need a little bit of noise. Some people have trouble sleeping. Some people have trouble waking up. Some people have trouble. <laughs> with bright lights at the concert. Some people want the bright lights at the concert and don't, you know, it's, 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 um, I think it's unfair to expect any one person to perfectly capture everybody's experience because it's just impossible. 
I mean, there's not one way to be autistic. There's not one way to be anything, really. And I think that's it's important that we have um, variety, different kinds of, of representation. Right. Well, so I guess in other parts of like the general writing industry, uh, how does your neurodivergence affect you? I know uh, sometimes people face extra hurdles in things like conventions or events or just in how either they are promoted by others or they can self-promote themselves. Uh, so I've never been to conventions or events and that's not really down to being autistic. It's just more down to the fact that um, I'm a single parent. I've not really had any income for years and years until I sold a book. <laughs> and even then it's a bit limited now. So for me, that was more like, I guess, a financial barrier. But I do think, I mean, I've talked about this a bit, I think in the, the Twitter chat that in some studies they did in the UK, they found that autistic life expectancy is between 36 and 54 years. Uh, and it's lower if you have comorbid health conditions, which a lot of us have. Um, and it's kind of, maybe it's a coincidence or not, but the, the average age for a debut fiction author in trade publishing is 36. And it just, to me, it's really striking that those two numbers line up that, you know, at one end of it, autistic people are dying basically before they become, because um, writing is often a second or third career. It's something a lot of people come to later in life. And I think there might actually just be a barrier where a lot of us die young, uh, not either from abuse or suicide or comorbid health conditions that aren't supported and recognized. Um, and that's just kind of underlying, maybe that's just part of it being a disability. It's an underlying factor, I think, in why, uh, in a barrier to publication. So sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's always stands out to me. Um, yeah, I haven't been to um, a con yet uh, because of the pandemic, <laughs> uh, but I have done a lot of virtual events for my book launch, um, which were a lot harder than I was expecting. Uh, and I was doing so many that I had to, it was sort of a crash course in how to manage it? Like, do I need to build in time to rest after um, doing a panel or doing an interview or a podcast or something like that? Like, do I need to, do I need, how much rest time do I have to build in? How, how much prep time do I have to build in? Like, how, for how long before this event am I going to be stressing about it and like, you know, trying to get my thoughts together? Um, and even just like I, if I have processing time, like I'm writing an email or writing a book, like that's, I can get my thoughts out um, and constructed well. But when processing time is limited in an in-person interaction or something like an interview or an event like this, like I can't arrange my speech sometimes in the way that it is in my head, like there's a disconnect. And then it's frustrating that it's not coming out the way that it's like lined up um, in my brain. So figuring out how to work with that processing time. And like, if I get questions in advance, am I gonna try and memorize my answer? If I try to deploy a memorized answer and I have a hiccup, am I just gonna completely blank on the rest of it? Or am I gonna be able to pick myself back up? Um, or do I write notes to refer to and will that help me um, get the rest of my ideas together? Or is it better to just not have, not know um, what the questions are going to be and try and do it blind? So I don't have any um, solid answers for myself yet, but that was the process of like, how do I make this easier? Because it is very hard. 
I, uh, I'm, I'm okay. I, I love going to cons as an audience member. I have not yet had a chance to go as a panelist or a writer. Um, with public speaking in general, I, I am very afraid of it. So I don't know if you guys know, but I'm very terrified right now. But um, <laughs> I, when I was getting my PhD, I made it a point to to learn how to speak publicly because I, I, I thought you know I was gonna make I might still make a career out of science I don't know but I wanted to be the the science person who can explain to people what I'm doing, um, so I think I'm very terrified of that part of this whole process but I'm working to prepare myself for it. What I really struggle with is self-promotion because I, I, look, despite all appearances, I'm a Filipino autistic person and I am very bad at talking about myself and saying, everybody, please come buy my books, they will be great. Because I think I still um, am conditioned to be humble and not talk about myself and not talk and not brag or boast about my books and and I'm in this stage now where I have to do that. I have to go out on Twitter and say, please, please add my book to Goodreads without sounding like I'm begging. And also, <laughs> how do I write <laughs> that post without? Uh, and, and I think the autism doesn't help because then I'm like, how do I write this post and sound good? I I think um, that's that's the part I'm currently struggling most with. Mm -hmm. I, I have a similar struggle, like with. Twitter in general though, like <laughs> I, this is why I don't tweet that much. I, every time I tweet, like I have to stare at the words for so long, reread it, rewrite it like so many times to make sure it sounds like natural or like, <laughs> like this is how people talk, right? Like I, like, I don't know. I just can never like, like I, I will have friends who like they'll have a thought and they'll just tweet it out, and I'm like, how? Like, <laughs> how does this work? I just can't do it. I'm um, forgiving, terrified of Twitter. So I get you. Yeah. yeah, I um, I don't. I hate more than anything being misunderstood, mm -hmm. and and I see all of these like people post something on Twitter and then everybody piles on them for, for something or another, sometimes justified, sometimes I'm not sure what the thing was. And I'm so scared. So I look at each of my um, words very, very carefully for the same reasons. Yeah. 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 I, I, I always feel like Twitter is how my career will eventually end. I'm just, I'm, eventually I'm just gonna say the wrong things. I always say the wrong thing eventually. And the world will just like come for me and I'll have to close my Twitter account and um, live in my bedroom for the rest of my life and <laughs> feel embarrassed. <laughs> it just feels like a matter of time. Yeah, social media is really harsh and unforgiving place. And I think that's hard, especially for um, autistic people, because I think a lot of us at one point in our lives have had the experience of saying the wrong thing, having something be taken the complete opposite way from how you thought it was going to be taken because your tone was different or you, you didn't say the right words, the magic sentence that unlocks the conversation that everyone seems to know, but you don't. And, and I think, yeah, the risk, I, I'm, I, I'm convinced that Twitter's gonna come for me someday. I don't know what it's gonna be about, but they will. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just seen that someone asked in the, in the comments if, if um, the time to think about how social interactions play out is what draws autistic people to fiction. 
I don't know if it does or not, but I definitely appreciate that in fiction you can take your time. You know, heck, I can spend a month thinking of like a witty reply for a character, yeah. which I would think of in real life. And that dialogue in fiction is pointful. It's structured. Everyone is saying pointful stuff and it's all building towards a point. Whereas in real life, everyone's just kind of waffling and it's a bit random. And sometimes it doesn't fill any point other than to kill silence, which is like, what? <laughs> so this, yeah. I'm sorry. Sure I modeled most of my like outward persona off of fiction as a kid, like reading books and a character would say something in response to that. And so I'd stand in the bathroom when no one's looking and try that line out several times until it feels right and then inject it into a conversation. Yes, um, <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> oh, that's such a good line. I'm going to practice this so that I can use it naturally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do that too. Where I'll just like, hear someone say something and like, that sounds like a cool thing to say i'm going to practice that in my head and then i psych myself up to be able to say the thing and then it always sounds weird when i say it <laughs> yeah i've had to memorize um my book pitch <laughs> and i think now i have it down um but for as much as i practice scripts uh in real life for social interactions like I, there's a there's a 20% chance that I will completely mess it up <laughs> in an interview or something, even though I've gone over it over, over and over, just because the nervousness, like phrase wires or something. <laughs> and also people go off the script that you planned and it's like, why did you do that? <laughs> I've, I've come to really love like the podcasters and moderators that have like the clear plan and like those are the questions that they ask. It's fine to deviate, but that like I have some structure that I can rely on to help get through it. So thank you, Travis. <laughs> yeah, that was really great. I uh, I really did appreciate that you sent those out. I mean, I know we have deviated, but even just the opening parts where I'm still nervous knowing what's coming next is really wonderful. And I think in terms of like industry accessibility, that's one thing that like accessibility for um, autistic and other neurodivergent folks like there people don't think about um accommodating or asking you know what our specific needs are um versus maybe some other disabilities but it would be nice to see more of that accommodation in the industry yep so there's a question from maya in the chat I'm wondering if anyone touched on the idea that neurodiverse writers might have trouble writing characters because in real life we have a disconnect socially Fictional characters behave in a much more predictable way than real human beings do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I I do think that um, sometimes I just have to think how a, how what would a realistic response to the situation, realistic for a neurotypical person, response to the situation would be. <laughs> There's a writing advice for dialogue to like go to a cafe and to like eavesdrop on conversations and write down how people actually talk but i don't think it's useful at all for like dialogue and fiction because that's not how we write it like that's not that's not a good way to read where people are interrupting each other and the topics are kind of getting cut off um and that's what we're encountering socially all the time um whereas in fiction it's like very clean and the ideas like flow mm -hmm. a lot nicer um, easier to read and to write than the messiness of real interactions. 
Yeah, a lot of my degree is in social linguistics and a lot of that was listening to recorded phone calls. And, and there is a branch of social linguistics, you can go into semantics, where you actually put dialogue that people are saying into kind of like mass equations almost or um, diagrams. And there's a structure to it. And basically the structure is just, you would never use it in writing because it's a lot of filler, um, ah, this, that, people interrupting each other, it's all over the place. Um, I don't know about other people, this is, this is a bit weird, but I learned to do my dialogue from kind of reading Plato because it's this kind of question and answer format that builds the point and that worked for me and it's so unnatural, but uh, I think, I don't know, characters are okay because like, I think like Elisa was saying, um, characters in fiction are not like in real life and you know real life doesn't have a narrative. You're not, your life is not a book. You're not working towards a happy ending. There's no arc. Um, we're not consistent, we don't understand each other, ourselves that well, and our conversations are not structured and pointful the way that they are in fiction, where everything is a controlled environment and I can control it, like some kind of evil mini-god. <laughs> and we have the processing time to control it, whether that's an emotional reaction. Out of it, you know, you get one shot in conversation, but you get as many years or months as it takes for a book to get it right. At least your first book, and then you have that awful thing called a deadline. But yeah, <laughs> so one thing that I don't think we've actually directly addressed so far uh, is just how does neurodivergence give a valuable perspective and uh, experiences that others might not have? I'm gonna poke Asa to say this first because she's got a point. Oh. <laughs> well, um, like I've been really happy to hear um, like the biggest thing that my readers are responding to is my imagination, my immersive and sensory prose and unique concepts. So I, if I'm, I feel like I'm learning to leverage the strengths of it um, a lot better and sort of using the way that I experience the world, which for me is often a struggle and a negative because I can't control the world, but I'm experiencing it, um, especially sound, like to such a detail um, that it's debilitating. But in I can use that as a sort of superpower in fiction to craft these worlds that feel incredibly rich and uh, immersive, and also to represent um, experiences uh, it just are sort of otherworldly, but make them feel real. Uh, I think as a teen, I um, didn't communicate very clearly in, in a way that most people would consider clear. I relied on a lot of um, metaphors and kind of phrases from movies and films. So if anyone's ever seen the, the famous Star Trek episode, Dormak and Jalab, where they, they have these aliens who are speaking and references to their history. And that was a bit what my communication was like. Um, but as I've gotten older and kind of gotten over that, um, I find it really useful to writing to be able to think in metaphors that I think of concepts and translate them very easily to fictional things I can put into a book. Uh, and make accessible to people that they can kind of understand my point, understand a really complex point that I would otherwise struggle to explain um, by having it be in a story, by having it be creative writing. 
and I don't know about the rest of you, but like I spend so much time people watching and mm -hmm. like <laughs> and, and memorizing like um, mannerisms and phrases and things that I can use <laughs> in social situations later and sort of like collecting these little tidbits of how to how to interact. Um, but I think that that people watching and that attention to the details of people and trying to kind of get into their skin then translated um, into writing comes out as um, more internal depth to the character um, and maybe more sensitivity to sort of those little details. Right, I think we all have these unique perspectives because of the way we experience the world. I, um, to build off of what Essa said, I'm a chronic eavesdropper. If there's a conversation happening anywhere with an earshot of me in a language I can understand, I am listening. Like <laughs> you could be talking about walking your dog, the most banal thing, and I am, I'm listening. Um, and I've been doing that for basically my whole life. I have memories of my my parents, uh, more my mom and my grandfather sitting me down and telling me, if you're not listening to a conversation, please don't respond. <laughs> because <laughs> I would chime in from like with the bed where I'm sleeping when my mom and grandpa are like off talking in the corner. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, obviously, I mean, I don't know how my books are going to look to an outsider. And right now I'm so close to the page that I can't really see the whole book for the individual words and phrases. But I, I think that that perspective might be in the book somewhere, like a different, a, a, a different way of describing sensory experiences, a different way of going through dialogue. And I think like, my personal special interest is reading from a lot of different perspectives. So I think that honestly, the more perspectives that we have in literature, the the more enriched literature will be, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do anyone, do anyone else have to do like um, a, a slightly tangential, but as part of my autism assessment, we I had to do a, a creative story test. I don't know if anyone else did that because I know it varies across country. Okay, Definitely. I'd heard about this in advance and it absolutely terrified me because I thought, oh, if I have to do this creative story test, I'm really good at it. Either they'll think I'm not autistic or I'll be terrible at it. And it's, I'm actually just a rubbish writer. I didn't know. <laughs> it was hard. It was hard. And what I realized from that is that what they were testing is um, it's not that I'm bad at creating stories, it's just the way they wanted me to create a story as part of the autism diagnostic test didn't make sense to me. It was, it was like, oh, pick five inanimate objects from this bag, and then you have to make a story about them. And it had all these rules, and it was just the weirdest thing. And it was really difficult. So I do think there's something going on where autistic people are maybe creating stories in different ways, which has contributed to this stereotype of us not being creative. And it's just that creativity for us is being, was being measured differently in a lot of cases. Interesting. <laughs> Okay, uh, I know we're coming up on time. One last, let's briefly address one last listener question uh, from Nicholas. Uh, do you think short fiction would be an easier place to explore neurodivergence? Oh, that's a good question. I feel like it depends on the story. Like, cause I feel like maybe there are some stories where it might be easier in short fiction, but like, and I'm more of a novel writer than a short story writer. Um, but I do write short stories. I just feel like there's so much that can be explored in a novel that like, I feel like novels for me are how I choose to do it. 
um, just because there's like so much nuance that like you can put out there when like a short story only has so many words that you can use, but maybe that works better for some people. I don't know. I think I you would think have to. Yeah, sorry. I think it probably depends on the writer, doesn't it? Because yeah, I, mean, I love writing short fiction, but I don't write very much of it. I don't think I've ever had a neurodivergent character in a short story just because, especially because I love flash fiction. When you've got a thousand words, you have room for one concept. And um, basically that's like one conflict, almost a scene, and that's it. Uh, someone who writes maybe longer. <laughs> um, I'm thinking of Essa's short story that was in a, oh, what was it? A magazine of science fiction fantasy, or is it fantasy and science fiction? Yeah, fantasy and science fiction. I think I felt like Pasha was quite neurodivergent, but that was almost 8,000 words. <laughs> yeah, there's more room. I think you'd have to be really focused um, and pick either an aspect of neurodivergence that you wanted that story to, to, to bring out, or like in science fiction and fantasy, you know, we can, you can bring in other elements to either represent or to comment on, like kind of going back to what we were saying with um, you know, aliens and robots and like using other species or um, different worlds or, um, you know. Merck Rustard. Um, so there, there's an autistic author, Merck Rustard, they're non-binary and they, they write loads of short stories. Some of them, a lot of them get into pro magazines, like some of them are award-winning and they, they do often have kind of neurodivergency as a feature. I can't remember the name of it. I don't know. I was thinking of, I think we're thinking of the same one. I think we're thinking um, of the same short story, but yeah, yeah. We're, it was really well done. I bow to all of you people who can write short stories. Um, <laughs> I have finally managed to wrestle my books down to the 100,000 word mark and my editor and I are fighting to keep them there. So I, I think that I'm, I'm I think that there's definitely room, but I don't think I'm the person who can do that. Um, so uh, I'm a younger writer. I would write everything in Flash, but there's no money in Flash fiction. <laughs> so, um. so I think that's about all the time we have. But before we go, I want to give all of our panelists the chance to let our audience know, uh, again, I guess, their most recent or upcoming work, and then where people can find them online. So I guess, Essa, if you want to go first. You're muted. Essa, you're muted. <laughs> well, I got the book up, though. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Um, my class is out, and the sequel is coming out um, this winter. You can find me online in most places at Essa Hansen, and um, I'm most active on Twitter, probably, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so... Elisa Bonin, uh, the name and the spelling are right here, I think right under my head. Um, you can find me, if you Google that, you'll go to my website. You can also find me on Twitter at EABWrites. So basically all those initials together. Um, and I think there should be links to my books on Goodreads. So please, please add Brave to Goodreads. It really helps. And if you have a follow to spare, now's a good time because this is the year when we'll get through all the exciting things like cover reveals and and I get to talk more about my book and things. So <laughs> be an early adopter. Come on, like, yeah. it'll be great. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I've got a book coming up from tour in 2022 um, or Harper Voyager UK if you're in Britain like I am. And 
my website is just my name.com, sunnydean.com. Uh, not a lot goes on it at the moment. I'm probably most active on Facebook and Twitter, which are supposed to be really terrible platforms for writers, but I just struggle with all the other social medias. So there we are. Um, other than that, I sometimes write short stories, like two a year, if that. <laughs> so, uh, there should be one in tour.com at some point. Nice. Um, my website is also just my name.com, uh, sonorareyes.com, and so is my Twitter at sonorareyes. Um, yeah. I don't know what my Instagram handle is, so I'm not going to say. <laughs> I think it's like Sonora Reyes one or like Sonora Reyes or something like that. I don't know what it is, but it's some variation of my name. <laughs> um, and yeah, keep an eye on my Twitter because some things are going to be happening at some point. Yeah. Intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that wraps everything up. Thank you to all of our wonderful panelists for their brilliant insights. And thank you for everyone who tuned in for this. This was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you for having us.